0: This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network, and we're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street. It's time for brunch. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my excellent partner in crime.
1: Patrick Martin. Thanks for having me, Katie.
0: (laughs) Patrick, I I really don't have any fun doing this without you. i got to tell you, last week... You
1: don't have fondue without me? No.
0: No, I would never have fondue without you.
1: Did you just say I'm fond of you?
0: I'm th- that too. Okay, <laughs> you are quick today. Must be that coffee you're having. Yeah. Um. So we uh we have a fantastic show coming up. Um. Eventually we'll have Brad Farmery. We'll have Judy Newsom from uh,
1: Nancy, Na- Newsome. Oh, sorry, Nancy Newsome. Sorry, Nancy Newsom. Nancy Newsom, one of the great ham Queen cures of, cre- of cures. I had never talked to her before, and she called me, and I knew of her because she's Colonel Nancy Newsom, one of the great ham yeah. cures. And And she called me literally mid-sentence. Like I'm like hello heritage and she's like oh these hams just needed to get cured and you see my previous guy and she just is like that you know well, that they don't make rock. them like that anymore yeah no she's
0: she's gonna be awesome I can't wait to have that on and Brad Farmery of course was the winner of the Cochon five 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 in New York City so he'll be he going also has on to three Aspen three great
1: restaurants Double Crown Public Colony now or Colony I, has that opened mm, they ordered something well, from us
0: we're gonna we're gonna be talking about Colony and we um. And uh,
1: Colonoscopy?
0: No, we're not going to talk about that ever.
1: Colony. I hope it's pronounced colony, but it's not spelled like colony. It is it
0: C-O-L-O-N-I-E? Yeah.
1: Colony. Colony.
0: Oui, c'est comme ça. Alors, uh, um, and then uh, we should remind people that our sponsor today is Whole Foods Market. And I want to um, say that Whole Foods Market reminds you that every bite... Has a story. So, whether it's a tomato, a muffin, or a T-bone steak, your conscious food choices can change the planet. Because at Whole Foods Market, every single purchase you make helps us support things like animal welfare, organic agriculture, equitable trade, and energy offsets. Let's think before we eat, let's retake our plates. Nice copy. I like that.
1: Yeah, and uh, we really love it. Now, you're going to hear a lot more about our sponsors at the beginning of each show, during the show, at the end of shows now. We're going to start getting you know up-to-minute um, facts about Barter House, about Whole Foods, Fantastic. about Fairway, about well, a Whole
0: Foods is going to collaborate with us on a show about their new animal welfare protocols, which uh, they designed partly with uh, Temple Grandin's input. So um, that should be an interesting little project coming up in the next couple of months.
1: Very interesting. Animals are the toughest thing to deal with, you know, because they're alive.
0: Yeah, and they have feelings. Yeah, they have feelings. They're really, really sensitive. Yes, absolutely. And anybody who has not felt that, I just don't understand people who don't think animals are basically humans without verbal skills. Because they're certainly capable of communicating in a variety of other ways, which I can read perfectly well. I mean, I know exactly what my kitty cat is thinking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, And your dogs. yeah, Yeah, my dogs, Weston Red. I mean, yeah, animals are sentient beings, you know.
0: That's right. So we're gonna take a quick break. I and it'll join. I need a job right for here.
2: these two hands. I'm a working man. Nowhere to go. One last look at the land. Auctioneer with his gavel in hand. And he said, It's got to go. Worked this piece all my life. Broke my heart, then took my wife. Now I. Show. I need a job for these two hands I'm a working man With nowhere to go wonder aimless in the city With my dirty work boots and old straw hand in hand Singing a song by Woody Guthrie This land is your land, it ain't my land, I'm a working man, with nowhere to go.
0: We're back on the main course. The this is Heritage sell. Radio yeah, Network. What's right? Two of my favorite people are right outside hey, the window Georgia! here. <laughs> Georgia and Sarah. Um, we are back yeah. with our guest, Jeffrey Steinberg. Oh, we're back already? Yes, hey, sorry, the distinguished author. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about Jeffrey for people who, if it's possible, don't exactly know uh, why he is so well-known or why we are so delighted to have him in the studio.
1: What is it the yes, is silent? it's Eingarten.
0: Uh, no, it would be Teingarten. Teingarten, yeah, right. <laughs> Or would the T be silent And then it would be sign-garin. Um <laughs> Yeah, don't mind us, Jeffrey We're just like Tell me as soon as you're finished your making
3: tea. fun of my name
0: um, No, I
3: don't think so um, Then I'll go on And then I'll do And then I'll say the word The one word that Patrick said I'm not allowed to say Which is Mangalisa
1: Mangalisa, yeah, he said it
0: Mangalitsa. Let's get it right, guys. It's like nuclear. You know, Spell
3: different ways you can. M a
0: n g a l i t s a. Mangalitsa. Mangalica. Okay, Mr. Steingarten, um, In case you haven't been uh, paying attention to the food industry over the last um, what twenty five thirty years, um, is responsible for um, the uh, all of the food writing in Vogue magazine for low these many years, as well as um, as well as and this is where I got to really. You know, drink your Kool Aid. Is um, the man who ate everything? And yes, what it must a have book. been something I ate? Which I, two books which entertained me absolutely almost beyond? I mean, really, I can. My stomach is still hurting from laughing as hard as I did over some of the essays, especially like the, what the man who, ate. the Olestra incident, oh. I think was maybe one of the funniest pieces of food writing I've ever read. I absolutely tell us, tell it. us, that what so struck nice you?
1: What struck you about it? Well, Katie. let Jeffrey tell. Okay. Oh, yeah,
0: well, Jeffrey, tell us what about t- what's. Struck- <laughs> <laughs> tell us, tell us a little bit about the Olestra incident, because that that really did leave an impression on me. I mean, I read that book about five
3: years well, ago. That's, that was actually longer than five years ago. Uh, I thought that Olestra was one of the great, uh, excuse me, one of the great inventions of the twentieth uh, century. That was the last century, I think. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> but they didn't realize what they had. I mean, I. I, I um, I went to Procter & Gamble's headquarters in uh, Cincinnati. I asked them if I could actually cook with the lester. No one had been out, uh, allowed to do that. And I had a whole whole big lawn, uh, 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 grocery bag, which I had to schlep on the airplane, of, f- of uh, chicken for fried chicken and, and pancakes and everything. And so <laughs> they let me cook for the morning. Everything came out perfectly fine.
1: When you say you are cooking with lestra what do you you are sprinkling this on? Well, you, or in what you form use it, it as it a come? medium.
0: It's like it's an oil. It's, it's like, an oil. The idea was is that it's a it's a right. non trans fat non in place of olive oil in place of any oil It's like a calorie free oil. Am I right there?
3: Well, actually, Lester is a method, in, um, and you can apply it to almost any uh, edible oil. But what it did was it passed through your system. Now, some people had.
0: Like greased lightning, I think is kind of.
3: The- well, some people had the symptoms called. um, um Maybe it was called anal spotting. <laughs> oh, but, um, oh, brother.
0: I swore we weren't going to talk about it. I mean, we already discussed it. We weren't going to talk but about it. But anyway,
3: things. I was like- explaining to them how.
1: Uh, uh, anal spotting. That's the first time that's ever been tagged, I'm sure, on the network.
0: <laughs> yeah, Jack is cringing right now.
1: <laughs> Two T's. <laughs>
3: So I told them that that if they apply, I asked them whether they had ever tried the method to kind of defang butter, because that would be a wonderful thing for people's health and everything. And they said, um, "No, why would we? Why would we care about butter?" I said, "Don't you understand that, um, that, that that animal fats, saturated fats, are the only kinds of fats that are really bad for you, but also trans fats." They hadn't quite figured that out. I mean, here's this big mm. fucking, this big, big company, and um, the sci- more money than God, scientists, um, and they didn't agree with me about the, the, the uh, saturated fat. So this was really 15 years ago. Anyway, um, I told them they would get a Nobel Prize if, if uh, they applied it to butter, and... Um, <laughs>
0: um, At least from the culinary world
3: Can you imagine how great it would be If, if, if uh, butter just passed through our system We would be able to swim in it We would yeah, be able yeah. to because bathe gobs <laughs> it, it.
0: Gobs and gobs of it
1: We would solidify to, it to, and We'd be able to clothing. inhale butter Yeah,
3: inhale. And, um, butter.
0: Well the thing that's interesting to me Is that it didn't occur to them That animal fats are generally tend to be the tastiest fats I mean olive oil aside But really You know goose fat, duck fat, oh, goose fat. Pork I cooked fat, two geese this chicken week. fat Oh really?
1: Yeah it's all all over the floors and everything because the garbage bag... <laughs> Where did you the get weave. them? Um, Good Shepherd Turkey Ranch. It was a, a poultry company we work with out in Kansas. They raise about 400 <clears throat> geese a year. So these are African brown geese. And there actually wasn't that much meat on it. But, God, if that was a tradition in America, the goose, it would be everybody's favorite meal of the year. Turkey is a solid one. But, you know, it's also... But, I mean, the goose... You so the flavor was sensational? Up. It's all dark meat. Yeah. The fat is much more a part of every bite. Because it's yeah. still a lean
3: ish. Did bird. you use a um With these African brown geese, did you use an African recipe?
1: No, I tried. I tried. But uh, is Tabasco African? Because I just put a little. A
0: lot of African cultures do use an enormous amount of hot spices.
1: Now let me ask you this: um, Has any American person, food writer, talking about African? It always amazes me. Like African art, there'll be like an exhibit at MoMA. African art. I'm like, isn't that an accumulation of many countries, each with their own different art style? Many tribes like um has anyone really broken down the various cuisines of Senegal, Kenya, Morocco, Egypt, uh, Congo like uh,
3: it just seems mm, like I think you're totally misinformed. Africa is one thing. There's no variety within Africa. <laughs> because, yes, people have broken it down. But I don't to...
1: read about that so much, you well, know. I'll Brad, I mean, about... uh,
3: well, maybe you don't read about it because the things you read don't talk about it but one person you have to pay a lot of attention to is Jessica Harris mm. who has t- 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 who has written very good books um, the early ones or the the popular ones t- t- till the last one she published were about <coughs> the african american mainly s- the uh, slave influence on american Food, mm-hmm. which is um, not
1: barbecue. Barbecue is not one of them, although it
3: was often thought to be. No, it is one of them. Oh, it is
1: one
3: of them. The we think the barbecue came to the southern states of America from African slaves who had been brought to the Caribbean, where most many slaves were originally brought because the sugar trade was the the largest, probably the largest cause of slavery, and. Um, or, or, you know, the, the largest use of slaves. <clears throat> and then um, then they were reimported to the states, t- to the southern states. There's a... There's something... Uh, I don't think that it is... I don't think that it's well enough research, but... There was a, a Caribbean word for either Arawak or, or or Taino, a barbacoa, or maybe that's a Spanish translation, and that was um, cooking, uh, cooking over a pit, slowly. Um, um, <clears throat> in any event, that is thought to be, to have been the uh, predecessor of barbecue, and, uh, mm. and then the black people brought the, you know brought it with them to the south. One thing you see in New Orleans, which is not really a southern city, even though it's in the south, because it's so cosmopolitan, always has been cosmopolitan, is that the only permanent residents over a long period of time were the blacks, especially the black servants, because everyone else changed. First it was the Spanish, then the French, then the English, now maybe the French again.
0: A lot of German Jews, too.
3: There was a little later, but, but, but so Creole yeah.
0: right around the ni- right around the turn of the nineteenth
3: century. Creole, uh, creole cooking was really created by uh, these black uh, cooks who you know who worked for an ever changing um, group of of. Um, the, uh, I mean, you know, landowners, you know, rulers in, right. in New Orleans. Um, now,
1: is Creole, uh, northern Brazil, all the way up to New Orleans, and then Cajun is just one little city in Lafayette? Uh, Carlo Petrini said that. He was like, Cajun yes, is, 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 is. A, is a little thing. Creole is just a massive thing. Islands, mainland, everywhere from the mid and the equator up. It, is it, that but it right?
3: all is, uh, Well, number one, Carlo is is right to say the Canadian is one small area um,
0: or I thought it was one small group of people the Acadians doesn't it because the, the Canadian well, come from Acadian and that was a group of like French Canadian French yeah influenced. like that except
3: it was mainly because the English but after they, uh, they you know they won Canada mm-hmm. by force they persecuted and expelled, but, but uh, certainly the Acadians, which were from part of Canada, they were. The English did a very bad job, and uh, a, you know a very mean job of the, the, the whole thing. And these people were just <clears throat> sent down to the United States. Now, it was, some stopped in Maine, and others went further. Huh. Right. But then there was this colony of people who went down where they spoke French, and that is New Orleans. You know, but they had no money. One good thing about being in a Cajun country was that you could pretty much grow or catch your own food. Hmm. So Cajun food is almost entirely made up of things you can either eat catch in the wild or uh, yes.
1: Now let me. Uh, that's uh, that's fascinating. Cajun okay, that's is a wild food culture interesting yeah, kinda, yeah, no one's ever said that on. that's the show. why the
3: um, um, there are not a whole lot of different spices because spices were very expensive in those days you know, it was, they had to be brought from India or, or wherever and um, the, the one local spice was hot peppers it was in that climate it's so easy to grow hot peppers
1: what is the hottest food in the world the hottest spice, hottest food in the world, then we'll come back to this. I've always wanted to ask that to someone who would know the
3: answer. Yeah, I wish I could ask them that. Um.
1: I mean, there are a few ones. Orange bonnet, wasabi, uh, red pepper. Um. Anyway, sorry, that's who a tangent. Who has the highest
0: Schofield score? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, they measure it in Schofield the, units, I think. But not, the, not, some, not, the not, not just peppers. a
1: natural, the earth creates the hottest yeah. thing. I wonder what
0: the what takes? I would well, like to know the, what
3: the adaptation of that was. I mean, like there is one what that has, uh, for a long time, it was the habanero. Uh, you know, you call it the Scotch bonnet, the same thing. Um, but there's one that's hotter. Really? That, that I've never heard of. But one interesting thing that um, where what what is it? What is hotter? I just said I don't know. what oh, it is Oh, you don't know
1: what it is? But there is another
3: there's, one. Said, do you want to embarrass me more? Sorry, did, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, ask me. I didn't. Hear hey Jeff, <laughs> what's it called? Jeff, hey, Jeff, don't you know that? So anyway, so, um, I'm sorry
1: to interrupt. I was interrupting. So you were saying Cajun is mostly a one wild really interesting cuisine. thing.
3: By the way, is th- 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 you know that through molecular gastronomy, mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 as the people still insist on calling it, not Wiley. He doesn't like that word. Nor no, Dave none
0: of them actually like it. except, none except of the people Hervé that, that, who I guess is the one. None that of the wrote people who point. do it,
3: except for Hervé and. Yeah. Um, I won't give in to, to, to the moment that word was invented, but, um, 92, 93. Uh, um, the, um, the, the, uh, using the rotary evaporator, uh, while doesn't have one, but Dave Arnold, his brother-in-law, does, you can distill from the scotch bonnet and from every other kind of hot pepper, the non-hot parts of it. Oh, really? People are always talking about how the real skill with using hot peppers you know, is not you know, to make it macho hotter and hotter and hotter, but to play with and uh, be creative with the um, the uh, fruity taste. Yeah. It's of, amazing of that anything pepper.
1: else could live with that heat.
0: But you with know? like those little thyme peppers, so are very floral and fragrant.
3: But it's so hard for us, at least, to, you know, who are not used to eating hot food every day, to distinguish those fruity tastes. Mm. So it would be. Um, I know that Dave Arnold has um, extracted the. Um,
1: he does a show on this network, by the way, called Cooking Issues, which airs Tuesdays at noon. It's best show on the network in terms show. of listenership. It is a call-in show.
0: Call in or write in. Yep.
3: And, um, but he's not the only one who has. Um, You know, try to to extract the uh, fruity aromas and taste from hot peppers. I'd like to um, see it done with all of them, ten of them, fifteen of them. And I was going to kind of sponsor or or help sponsor, you know, that project for an article in Vogue. Um,
1: The sweet side of harsh or spice or something like that. I mean, or just peppers. Peppers.
3: it doesn't have to be more global than that. Um, maybe that'll come in the future. Other people have done that. You know, I mean, have picked one pepper. I can't remember who it was who told me that he did. Uh, did jalapeno. Um, don't you find it interesting that in India, that they really have only one pepper? Hmm. Which but one? How spicy? It is. But, 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 well, I asked Jaffa, he said the red pepper.
0: That's it's it. they the, just red call it
3: the red pepper. The red pepper. The Red pepper. What are you talking about? So Jeffrey? that
1: sounds like it could be many different um, types of pepper.
3: It may <laughs> or may not be. It, you know, it's the same conundrum of. of uh, <clears throat> don't you think it's amazing that the, the uh, French grow, a, that, you know, at least eighteen different kinds of potatoes? Yeah. And they're very specific about which ones you use where. <clears throat> the Italians, who live only a few feet away. Tend on the map only a few inches away I mm. uh, have only two potatoes north and south. Huh. Really? But, and they eat a lot of potatoes. They do. How do you explain that?
1: That is weird. Well, we're going to cover this and many other interesting issues with uh, one of the, literally the most knowledgeable brains in the food world. And I'm going to ask, uh, we're going to ask about that expertise and, you know, um, Culture. And, How'd you get there? Yeah, how do you get to taste the thousand <laughs> types of potatoes or habaneros yeah. in a lifetime? And and what would you warn people against uh, for people who haven't, but still write about those issues? So we'll be right back. We're sponsored by Whole Foods, and we've got Jeffrey Steingarten in studio.
2: He wakes up early in the morning puts on his only blue suit. He hasn't quite mastered tying his tie on the way his sweet Sarah used to. It's been years since he's talked to the good Lord. He's not sure Today, he goes to church on Sundays now, no, he go now he's up right and early there by 930 and sits on the very front row and he bows his head with the members and he shouts in church on Sundays now no he don't know the words to the old cross but he sings them the
4: best
5: this is a public service announcement
4: can. from Heritage Radio Network he Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of cookingissues.com will discuss new and innovative techniques, and equipment and ingredients
2: Call in with your own questions to see, to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues.
3: Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. He
1: did a drop. We're doing a sponsor drop right now. A future show, which is like just a new thing now.
0: Yeah. yeah. We are. Well, everyone does yeah. We are back. I am Katie Kiefer with my co host Patrick Martins, and our guest in studio today is the eminent Jeffrey Steingarten. Our show is sponsored by Whole Foods, and now let's get back to the
1: conversation. So, blogging. Is that all bullshit? No. But, I mean, these guys, why, you have anyone one? can get their own friggin' website. I want published material, print publishing, which you do, you know, and did for years. Books, articles, like a blog. How can you distinguish
3: who well, knows we were, what the hell let's they're talking about? for a second,
0: because we before the break, we were going to talk about expertise and okay. how Jeffrey became an expert, and that feeds no, right into... I thought into... you were going to talk
3: about why, why Whole Foods hates me. Oh, yeah, why? Uh, well, we will no, talk we about talk that about another that. time.
0: But, um, no, let's <laughs> talk about how, because you're saying why are bloggers allowed to be experts when they're often not, and, and let's talk about how you get to be an expert since we have one in the studio. So, Jeffrey, take it away.
3: <laughs> uh, uh, <clears throat> I was very fortunate to have a, um, a job that allowed me to spend full time Doing an article uh, or a little more every month and be able to live on that. To th- you know, to live kind of in you know in, in Manhattan, th- the lifestyle. I mean, kind of low level Manhattan lifestyle. Five
1: five ten bedroom apartment. I've so, heard.
3: Well, a very old loft with, with a terrace, kitchen that keeps on kind of growing into the living room, you know, and and, and the library. Every time I uh, buy a new toy and. <laughs> And now the toys, I mean, with molecular astronomy, the toys are really big. I was just in uh, in Madrid, (coughs) going to Madrid Fusión, which occurs every year. And and, uh, (coughs) one thing is, because the Europeans are so vastly ahead of us, you find out about all the new technology. Now they have something which is about the size of a, a bus, that you need to um, compress food, to, or or or, or um, reserve pressure on on uh, food equal to six thousand uh, atmospheres, <clears throat> more pressure than anywhere under the sea uh, on the earth. And um, I still haven't figured out whether it would be worthwhile having this bus in your apartment. Um, yeah. Well, it might be possible t- to reduce the size. I don't, If it were a miracle worker Then they would be able to reduce the size To the size of of, say Two Two washing machines stacked
1: Now what Um, is the benefit of doing this My
0: (laughs) question is like why do I want to compress My food unless I want it in pellet form Or unless I have to travel Where is gastronomy there
3: I've only seen um, Videos of Of the operation of the machine Um, it doesn't actually compress it. It doesn't make the food into a tiny pellet um, by exerting <laughs> t- t- that amount of force. T- t- uh, you kill all viruses and bacteria without oh. the the uh, or without uh, cooking it, uh, uh, and without uh,
0: irradiating it.
3: Yes, without the oh. ill effects of pasteurization. So it's that, one step
1: past sous vide. It's like it's raw. It's a raw food movement. No, I mean, in well, array. yes,
3: But then you might cook no, it's it after that.
0: It's cleaning or pasteurizing the food. So what would you use this on, for instance? Meat? But
3: not pasteurized. Remember, pasteurization is uh, named after pasteur. Yeah,
0: you have to boil. It's bringing up it, it to a high out. temperature.
3: I mean, there's no doubt that if you taste <coughs> raw milk, especially Cheap's milk. I remember you're at the Union Square Green Market, which is two blocks from my house, and therefore where I shop. With your dog, Golden Retriever.
1: Sky, is
6: he
0: still with you?
3: No, I'm afraid he died. Oh,
0: I would huh. imagine that was yeah. Sky figured large in, the, in a about book that was a, published about he ten years about ago. Died about a month so. and a half
3: ago, and oh, I'm oh, so sorry.
0: What a tragedy! I'm Not
3: sorry. in a way that made me happy with how he died, but we won't yeah. go into that. No. Um, <clears throat> so a long time ago uh, at the Green Market there was a sheep's milk cheese maker and. A, and she would often bring the actual sheep's milk, pasteurized and unpasteurized, and you could taste it, and and you could see how pasteurization really does give things a cooked taste. Um, there is low level pasteurization, in, you know, uh, in Canada, for example. I don't think we're allowed to do that here. I'm not sure about mm-hmm. that.
1: Well, tell us about, I mean, this is also, uh, people don't know, uh, one of Jeffrey's many uh, claims to fame is that he was offered the presidency of Slow Food about 10 years before me.
0: So he could have been your boss.
1: Then he realized that, um, <laughs> yeah, then he would have realized that, that there was fundraising and stuff. So he was like, you know, eh. but um, so I want to ask, I mean, talking about these trends, I mean, yes, you're always following these new kitchen kitchen devices and technologies but like in terms of just like trends out in the open world like this hamburger trend with your great friend Mark Pastori. Uh, every time I go to La Frida Meats pictures of you are littered across the entire facility there and um, burgers butchering meats like whole animal whole animal utilization like because when you started, it doesn't seem like there was so much attention given to these things. And now all of a sudden there is. And I think you might have been a part of that. So how do you see that whole culture movement unpacking itself?
3: Well, um, well, the, uh, there are many ways of, of approaching that. Uh, one way, which, is, um, which I can say is, is, is my own you know, sanctimonious take on it all, uh, is that uh, human beings do not need meat in order to thrive. Not just survive, but to, to thrive and, and, and be robustly healthy. So the reason we eat meat is for our own pleasure. Therefore, we're taking life for our own pleasure somehow we that um, includes me have been able to justify that and um, but if you agree with me so far then you certainly have to agree that there's no excuse for eating any food for killing any animals in order to eat things that don't give you pleasure okay and if you have like a a they kind of pay What's the word that I'm looking for? Maybe the, the, the shit, like the shit hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> or or even, you know, hamburger that the meat kind of sprinkled on the pizza. Or um,
1: <laughs> if it doesn't really have a gastronomic background, no yeah. there's no excuse for that. There's
3: no excuse for that. I
1: would agree with you there.
3: I mean, there's also no excuse uh, for waste. Yeah. Um, what about animal suffering and
1: stuff? Does that play into it if the animal suffers? I mean, does... There's no possible
3: excuse for that.
0: None. Yeah, you
3: know. That. Can you think of That's any excuse for that? why Foods
0: exists. is because of that. Right. No, there is no excuse. Where I will disagree with you, Jeffrey, is that I do believe that people evolved out of being sort of essentially um, proto-apes because they were able to cook and eat meat. Because they didn't. I mean, they weren't cultivating any crops. So what else? Did we, what else explains our evolution? Once we discovered fire and started cooking meat, and were able to bring enough protein into the system to have, to grow the brain bigger than a chimpanzee, we were able to digest it better. You must have read Richard Wrangham's book.
3: Yes, of course. But catching fire. Yes.
0: I thought that made a Quite great equally argument.
3: important as I have. Um. One of my first articles, I mean, one of my early articles, and it's in my first book, The Man Who Ate Everything, which was a New York Times bestseller. Um,
1: Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. That's
3: <laughs> NY Times. Well, neither, <laughs> of, neither of you have said that enough. We didn't um, say enough
0: about your awards?
3: So, no, you haven't. But uh, I, but anyway, <laughs> so I wrote an article which was called uh, Salad the Silent Killer.
2: Oh, yes,
0: I love and, that. And
3: um, the idea, which is... Now fairly widely accepted, although at the time it should have been, um, and I shouldn't have gotten so much hate mail. The uh, most vegetables in their raw state have uh, chemical defenses against people eating them, and especially people eating the, the people or animals eating the seeds. They get very, very bitter, and um, sometimes even poisonous. So there was an earlier theory, and I think that is, uh, you know, as valid as this as this meat business, <clears throat> that um, before the invention of cooking, it was impossible to t- t- to get very many nutrients at all from vegetables, probably, or from fruit. So um, and
0: grains were not cultivated, so that wasn't a big part of the diet. Which and they have to be cooked anyway, right?
3: So, though, uh, they certainly do have to be cooked, but. but <coughs> uh, excuse me. Let's see. There were anthropological studies showing that uh, about seventy to eighty percent of all primitive men t- t- and women um, cultures, you know, New Guinea things like that, that they they, uh, they cook between the seventy to eighty percent of their um, food. The Chinese. There's one small part of China which I've been told by Nina Simons actually has salads hmm. um, that's it. The Chinese don't eat raw things I mean now obviously they're becoming cosmopolitan they have sushi bars um, but, you like know everything. they have lettuce um, but, uh, but just to think about the Chinese food you had let's say <clears throat> at a you know traditional Chinese restaurant, and as of say fifteen years ago there was nothing raw.
6: No. Mm.
0: Except
1: for beef. Also, it's argued by some people that uh, there's one massive Chinese communal kitchen deep under the city, and that's how the food gets there so fast.
0: There really is no great, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you know better, but I have yet to find a really, truly great Chinese restaurant that has gone that step beyond sort of the communal kitchen style of Chinese.
1: Grand Sichuan on 55th and second, it's really? Sichuan with the Z, which yeah. is supposedly uh, a sign that it's good. And it's a guy who used to write Eric Asimov all these really nice letters each week. And finally, Eric was like, "God, just to stop the use of paper, I'm going to go and visit this place." And it turned out really to be one of the best, very spicy.
0: Well Sichuan cooking, I think. Is Chengdu. traditionally. Chengdu but what do you think, Jeffrey? Chengdu chicken. What's your have you have you found have you stumbled upon or, or been solicited by the the great Chinese restaurant in New York?
3: Um I've had several meals at that second Avenue and, and that fifty fifth street or fifty fourth street. Um
1: Fifty fifth fifty six, I think.
3: But it it's um I'm not exactly sure where Asimov uh, fits into the uh, discovery of that restaurant. Um, If you can give me any uh, dates, then I'll be able to to, to kind of figure it out.
1: You know, real old school, like 2002 or something. No, I mean, I'm sure you were much before, but...
3: No, I'm not. I ate there with uh, Fuchsia Dunlop. Fuchsia Dunlop is, I think, the greatest expert in the English language. She's British on Szechuan food she um, she has the best cookbook the best Szechuan cookbook of all time and I wish that I could remember the name I, it's possible that it's called The Good Food of Szechuan <clears throat> um, which is of course it, then uh, you, know, probably, you know an obvious title um, the, I don't know, because of the breakfast to play, good woman of Szechuan um, that we're all so familiar with. Um, so I took her to, to the restaurant on on Second um, Avenue and Fifty Fifth Street, to Grand Central One. It was the only one of that whole chain that kind of was serious or you could get them to be serious about Mm -hmm. actual real Szechuan food
1: Mm -hmm. the menu is like 25 pages long has a whole
3: that's usually
0: a red gym. flag for me, but okay.
1: <laughs> no, but I'm saying of descriptions, appendixes. Yeah. Oh,
0: well, things. okay. Menu is like
1: four or five pages. But I,
0: any restaurant that claims <laughs> that it produces, you know, 50, 60, 80, or 100 no, no, dishes no, no, or something like that, or it, something that's pan
1: Asian, Japan, yeah. China. You know, I'm just like, how do you know how to do both?
0: So you're saying that this, this, in your opinion, would be the preeminent Chinese no. restaurant in mm-hmm. New York City? No. Or Sichuan, then? Or not even that? You wouldn't even give it that. It's solid. Solid is good. I would just like to see, you know, Chinese food and elevated to the level. We sat down. Well, and, Palace. Uh,
3: we sat down. and the chef came Sorry, out. He was very happy to, uh, to talk to Fuchsia and um, I was honored. i And so then they started talking about it, the, the, the menu for our dinner. I think that I was... I was there with Ed Levine and maybe one other person. And we were just sitting there for 45 minutes while Fuchsia and the chef got g- gabbled and gabbled. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and they hadn't coughed up an appetizer yet?
3: Probably, probably, you know, Fuchsia was really rude because she didn't translate one word of it. So we were just, <laughs>
1: rude.
3: To, just sitting there. I would have been happy to have gone to a bar and had a few scotches. Well, you were next to PJ back.
1: Clark's next time that and,
3: happens. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> well, Let's However, go However There's a place in London Called Bar Shu Which uh, You know But you know In Soho the Soho London Which and I would say 50% of the occasions You go there Has Real Sichuan food That reminds me Of the You know It's a taste You can't forget Once you have it in, you know, For a couple of weeks In Chengdu mm-hmm. Capital of Sichuan And um, I want to go back there as soon as I can to Chengdu. Now, the uh, travel money is not quite as um, liberally distributed in the magazine business to these days as it was. Uh, You know, it was pretty easy for me to go anywhere. Um, Now I have to have a good reason.
1: Now you have to have a good reason. Well, you (laughs) just came back from Madrid Nancy, we're going to have a five-minute call-in with Nancy Newsom, uh to talk about uh, ham culture, um, you know, differences between here and there. But tell us about some of the things you caught in Madrid and some of the things that, you know, struck you besides ham.
3: Well, ham was certainly one of them. And then all this, um <laughs> you know, many of the uh, of the kind of advanced uh, innovative procedures of whatever you want to call it science food, tech food um, that Nathan Muirval calls it you know modernist cuisine. Uh, one thing Harold McGee calls it is is you know experimental tech cuisine or experimental cooking.
1: Is this like Adrià stuff? I mean, what you were calling molecular gastronomy earlier?
3: Yes. Most of those techniques, many of those techniques, came from the food industry.
0: Yes, absolutely. Tom Colicchio told me that. He was like, I spent my whole life trying to get away from industrial food. Why would I want to use those toys in my kitchen now? I thought That was an interesting, this was like, you know, five, six years ago, when it was just starting to get hot. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting thought, because the circulator and the whole vacuum cooking and all that stuff is all industrial preservatives
1: just used in very small amounts. My
0: sense of I mean, just to be reductive and, and really annoying about this is that it's boys with toys. It's like, these are gadgets.
3: You've just succeeded in being annoying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this will be the first Girls of Girls have many no appreciation
3: time. for the... We don't. The,
0: Girls do not do gadgets.
3: The, the warmth and importance... Of the have. circulator? No, I know of a relationship that only men... Mainly men can appreciate between man and machine. Man and machine. I think that's true.
0: I think you're absolutely right about that, Jeffrey. I mean, I just don't. I don't. I didn't drive a car until I was forty, so that gives you some sense of my. You're scared
1: to drive into the city. I detest
0: drive. I I do it now. I do it, but I I really hate it, and I don't. I don't even like my computer, in spite of how incredibly convenient and all encompassingly interesting it has become in my life. But um, yeah, no, I I don't like any. It occurred
3: to me the other day when I was kind of. To, uh, writing something about the, the, uh, the, uh, you know the early days of electric gastronomy. I remember one year, one breakthrough. Ferran Il Bully. To, uh, came up with a dish that he demonstrated, and another Madrid Fusion. I don't think I was at the restaurant when this the, the dish was invented. He would come every year, and he would show the new discoveries, and all these young Spanish chefs would be able to do everything that uh, you know Ferran did. Really. Uh, you know, from the last season, he never uh, gave you the the uh, tricks of this season, mm-hmm. <coughs> but all these young Spanish and other chefs were just to sit there learning what the you know the state of the art uh, not something that happens in this country um, and so on a plate that 's kind of part of the part of the decoration you might say it was the, well, you know it was kind of vaguely uh, apple themed hmm. there were cubes of like jello gelatin yes D- you know dark green gelatin that, that, that you know that were uh that, that, you know tart apple flavored okay and then you put them in your mouth and you realize they were hot
0: hmm. spicy no the gelatin was actually hot
3: Hot, temperature. hot
0: in temperature, but it still had a gelatinous uh, uh, quality, which is completely counterintuitive.
3: No, exactly. And, and you know, something you've never had. Well, right. I mean, of course, it was, you know, it was done with, t- t- um, t- 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 you know, either agar-agar or, or yeah. perigenin or all the things that I, I look on. I those the,
0: could withstand hot temperatures.
3: To all the things that I look on the side of a package to avoid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, but
0: those are natural products. I mean, they never all come co- from...
3: Sea well, there are some paper or whatever. You no, know, certainly, they all come from seaweed and things like that, and, and they're they're uh, modified starches. They're called or hydrocolloids, um,
0: otherwise known as meat glue.
3: No, there's also meat glue, too, which is... Um, I
0: thought that was a hydrocolloid. Well, I don't want to get into the, you know... I'm not going to go crazy Well, in that.
1: Madrid... But now, what I'm going to ask... Wait, wait, wait. Breed doesn't matter and feed doesn't matter. Wait, wait, That's wait, something wait. Jeffrey Let's said. not go to
0: ham. I know, he did. But let's before okay. we go to ham, because we're going to... I just want to... I want to go back to this molecular gastronomy business and boys with their boys toys. Boys and toys. You love the that gadgets. Jeffrey like that. Yeah. This, which really... Sorry, it's like, why... It, are my are my sense is my sensual, you know, uh, experience enhanced by is my flavor profile enhanced by the use of these gadgets?
1: Yes. Fruity pepper essence from a hot pepper. That's cool. You never. That's tasted cool. That,
0: that is cool. No, I do taste that because when I buy Thai bird chilies and I use them in a stir fry or in a soup or something like that, I taste and smell the floral quality of those chilies. Okay, they add some hot spice to it, but they also have like a very distinct Touché, aroma Katie. and flavor. Okay, so but I mean, when I'm talking about like, do I care? Why should why should we care, Jeffrey? I'll play devil's advocate here, as I so often like to do. Why should we care that we had a hot cube of gelatin? Who gives a shit?
1: So Sorry, I care. But- really i go ahead, once a year i like going to this wd is, this is
0: and, what you want to tell me when you're year. finished
3: your speech okay just, yeah. <laughs> just tell me when you're finished talking
1: you can talk now jeffrey okay since i'll you're let you guest. go
0: yeah all right go ahead
3: <laughs> a lot of things that that for Ron andrea does or did were for fun he would walk around kind of looking at people but in the restaurant Being surprised. I mean, he hated people who just sat there, uh, you know, serious the whole meal through. Part of it was delight. Part of it was magic. Uh,
0: Epiphany. Fair enough.
3: uh, You know, emotions that we don't, you know, kind of associate with haute cuisine. But. um,
0: But things that should be associated with haute cuisine. Excuse me, would you stop talking? Jesus,
1: Katie, just kidding.
3: Uh, Don't talk anymore, okay, please? (laughs) Because I have very little time left here because uh, soon you're going to have someone else. We hope you stay
1: with Brad because yes. we're going to be talking about all those funky things that he cooks. Crocodile, alligator, bear, condor. Um, yeah, we condor. Want you to go. Yeah, you can't leave. You showed up late. Now you're being punished. You have to stay the whole time. Uh,
3: no, I am going to stay. Uh, but, but okay, now there are, uh, uh, there are two basic... Uses of, of what we sometimes call molecular gastronomy, you know, and for that matter, there are two basic uses of any innovation in, in, in uh, cuisine, and there's a real premium put on, on innovation these days, isn't you know, on, on, on new things.
1: This is big listeners. Two things about innovation what are they, Jeffrey?
3: One, <laughs> making traditional food taste better. Taste, Take that, Katie. Taste Is also that really a,
1: innovation? Katie, don't talk.
3: Taste and also work better. That's like a Lestra. And um, two, to invent new dishes that no one has ever had before.
1: Booyah, <laughs> Katie. You Silence. Know, that
0: reminds me of the art Now, Heston business.
3: Blumenthal at, at the, the uh, Fat Dog, his restaurant and now he has a new restaurant in London. But his kind of main restaurant in the countryside of England in Bray um, used most of, of the uh, the uh, scientific information that he t- to both acquired and also developed in his own laboratory to make... Th- to make things better, to mm-hmm. to to, yeah. to to perfect things. The
1: why why does uh, everything um, have to be a traditionalist? Just because you and your friend Erica Domain do Italian traditional no, it's, it's not because classes. it has to
0: be traditional. It's because I think that constantly trying to reinvent the wheel, without any yeah without any uh, without any reference to the past is kind of what went wrong with the with the art world in the last you know half century. So it's it's sort of this this you know incredible emphasis on creating something new which is not always necessarily better and which is often
3: so i guess you didn't understand a word i said no no (laughs) jesus christ
0: no why am i sitting here what i did like about what you said was the idea of delight
3: no no. heston uses most of the things and and i'm heston has a fantastic laboratory and Mm -hmm. That you know, built that has a little house in the parking lot that he bought near his uh, restaurant after he got rich. Um, he perfects traditional dishes. So, for example, there's a very famous, common, pea and ham soup. Yes, it's uh, pub grub, and then people have it, at the, you know, at their homes. He has gone to such lengths. To create the perfect pea and ham soup, and it is just perfect. He stopped at nowhere. Or nowhere, you know, he stopped nowhere. Th- th- there was no, no amount of, of, of uh, labor and thinking and expense that he did not exert um, in order to perfect this soup. Fair um, enough. And so you can call it kind of traditional haute cuisine. The uh, you know many of the dishes about cuisine in in, uh, France were elevations, whether perfections or not. You can they can argue, but elevations of traditional and even regional country dishes.
0: Yes, that is true. That is true. Um, I think what what disturbs me is the sort of uh, innovation for the sake of innovation, and uh, that. That is a trend that really kind of
1: annoys me. Seats. But um, but talking about lack of innovation and doing things in an old school way, talking yeah. about, we're going to talk five minutes while uh, Brad and his right hand man uh, get settled. We're going to talk with Nancy Newsome from Kentucky mm-hmm. about hams. Uh, Nancy, are you with us?
7: Yes, I am. Oh, hi, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. I didn't know you were there. <laughs> yes, I am.
0: Welcome to the main course.
1: Yeah, it's really Thank nice me. to have you. So, Nancy, we have a a world traveler here. He's the man who ate everything, including all different types of hams, and uh, we wanted to ask you one of the questions uh, as as between Jeffrey Steingarten and you is. Do you as a colonel for curing hams down in Kentucky see there being a difference between, you know, the Spanish and and the Italian style or the French style and the kind of American tradition, besides the fact that Americans smoke it? Is there really, uh, what are the differences between the two ham-curing cultures?
7: Well, I would say that among most uh, ham-curing processes in the United States, They do not age their hams as long. Um, There are some hams in northern Italy and northern Spain that are smoked, uh, from what I understand. Um, So my hams are smoked also. But I would say that I was thinking about this this morning, and and I would say that the answer to that is in the aging process and then also in the holding on to uh, as as best that uh, Europeans can, they are more traditional in their views on their hams. Uh, they're more traditional on their curing practices and holding on to those curing practices. Whereby in America it appears that for the most part in your commercial ham industry, it is that they they are not all about holding on to an a family you know age old process as much because you know if they were then there wouldn't be quite as much um there would be more aging that went along with it and that kind of thing which uh, i can i can honestly say in, in telling my own product that that we are more traditional in that respect
1: tell us a little bit just briefly for our listeners uh, because you're going to be coming on again to keep us in the loop with ham curing and what's going on in kentucky and such but tell us a brief history of uh, colonel newsom's and, and how long you guys have been around and such
7: oh okay well as far as the curing experience we came to america from england in 1642 and the Indians were already curing venison with what they called magic white sand. So we began <laughs> learning evidently from the Indians because we moved to North Carolina with that process and then moved to Kentucky with it in 1963 when USDA made my father, you know, build a, a new building. He double-checked the process by an old will that he mm. was, uh, a process he was already using. Uh, the... As far as our retail experience, we've been in business for 93 years. Uh, We've been curing hams commercially uh, since probably 1950 because back in the day before that, everyone cured their own hams. There was no market for it. There was not the logistics that go along with shipping product and everything like, you know, at that time. Uh, so we've been in business 93 years. I've run the business for about 30 years, and uh, but my family's been curing hams uh, since the beginning. You know, for, since uh, since they came to America in 1642, uh, which is really funny because their their name was spelled N E W S H A M when they came from England. new sham. <laughs> <ham. laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, history history makes, you know, we make people make history, but more importantly, history makes people who they are.
3: Absolutely. Can I ask what... Yeah.
0: Nancy, yeah, this is Jeffrey uh, Steingart.
3: Uh, Stein hi, this is Jeff. What was it that the Indians were doing to cure hams? They were hams?
7: curing venison.
3: Yes, in... But you had a word for it, white...
7: Magic white sand.
3: Magic yes. white sand, I want some of Would that. Would that
7: be
0: salt?
1: <laughs>
7: that what was that? actually sea salt, I feel. And see, that's another thing that is done more so in your in European countries, to my knowledge, is that they use sea salt. The salt that I use is not sea salt. And so when I tasted the Spanish hams when, when I was over there, the, the difference in mine and theirs, the biggest difference I could mm-hmm. tell was that mine had a little more saltiness to them. Could uh, pr- for their age,
3: uh-huh. Uh-huh. Could as opposed I- to the Spanish. Could I propose the idea that all salt is sea salt?
1: All salt is
7: sea well, salt. <laughs> well, I don't believe that it is. Now I, that I'm b- just now beginning did, to investigate. How did
3: it get? How did it get to the mountains of Kentucky?
7: Uh, the salt.
3: Yeah, by the by you, the oceans.
7: You, the oceans receding. Yeah, presumably
3: Kentucky was under the sea for thousands of years.
1: Now, uh, right. if only your family had been curing for the past thousand years, Nancy, you could, you uh, could through wills definitive. and all that a definitive answer. Now, also <laughs> so, uh, <laughs>
3: you make, uh, Nancy, you make very, very famous American Southern hams. Have I you mean, tried it, Jeffrey? Yes, oh, of course.
6: Thank
1: you. And what do you think? Where do you try it? At Sambar, or I mean, where for your own writings? I mean, like how? What have you? What's your
3: connection and to? I've whole hams in the past. I was
0: going to say you—you you probably had a whole taste. But, test but also, at your Dave house. Arnold.
3: <laughs> Dave Arnold had a, a ham exposition at at the New York mm-hmm. Hotel and Motel show once and um one was Bent the Benton, one was so and then um David Chang has a
0: yeah, has a long an long American place,
3: ham uh, course section on you... his menu, which is we, we how actually we actually
0: tried that a couple of weeks ago. It's
1: how we first learned about Sam Edwards, about Al Benton, and about Nancy. And mm-hmm. we're really beyond honored that Nancy buys uh, some uh, for the first end of spring, right? Spring sweats or something, or before spring. Uh, how are those hams working out for you, Nancy? The heritage. Uh kinds. the
7: hams are working out fine. They're in salt right now. Okay, okay. and I they will know they remain in, in salt. Cold. Yeah, of course. They came from you all. From from uh, uh, part of my hams do come from uh, Heritage Foods, from and they're the free range, antibiotic and growth hormone free, which I do have a uh, a market for. And uh, those hams are still in the salt, you know, cure, and uh, they're stacked one on top of one another. Well, listen,
6: yeah.
0: And they're packed in salt, Nancy, or you use a brining solution.
7: Well, no, I don't use the brining. We hand-rub these hams for a very long time because uh-huh. we do not use any nitrate. Right. If you use nitrates, you can just give them what my father would have called a lick and a promise.
6: <laughs> and,
7: you know, and just barely rubbed them and gone on. But we don't use any nitrate. So we hand-rub this salt into them. Then we sprinkle them with salt, and then we stack them on shelves, and they stay a, a, a certain number of days calculated upon the gross weight of of uh, you know what your average weight of the product was.
1: Uh-huh. Well, that's awesome. Well, listen, Nancy, thank you so much. Are you at your daughter's house now?
7: Yes, I am. <laughs> I've been enjoying my grandchildren. Actually, it's a little bit, it's a little breezy, but it's kind of warm outside today. I think it's supposed to reach fifty degrees, so I think uh-huh. we're going to go down to the lake. Are any throw of your rocks kids in the lake and go to somewhere reflective? <laughs> any
1: any of your kids or grandkids going to continue with Newsom's?
7: Well, you know, I'm not really I really seriously doubt my daughter will. Uh mm-hmm. she kinda has the same views that Mr Edwards uh daughter has, that the business is hard on us. Mm-hmm. Uh my son on the other hand uh, knows how to cure the hams if something were to happen to me. He's kind of a uh he is kind of a soulful, nostalgic guy, So, but he also realizes how much, actually, how much of your life you dedicate to this. So it, it should just be a toss-up as to whether he can stand for Newsom's to not be in existence or not. Hmm. Like, as in the case was for me when I hmm. took it over after a major fire we had in our, in our business.
1: Well, listen, we hope you stay along forever. Thank you so much, and Thank I can't you. wait to to see you again and then to have you be on again for a little bit of a ham culture
7: i'd love to do that i'm honored all right y'all call me anytime i love it okay great
1: now we uh, might as well just cut back in with our talking about unusual things i cannot wait to ask some questions uh you and i let's introduce
0: uh, our next guests because um i don't see jack so i guess oh no Well normally we would take a short musical interlude here, but we might as well just keep going because the guys are in the studio so we have um in addition to our our eminent guest jeffrey steingarten an award winning Writer,
1: New York and writer. Times bestseller. right? Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> um, we also have, <laughs> yeah. Keep spinning it, right? No, we'll, we'll do a full rundown. I'll read your biography at the end of the show. Um, we have uh, Brad Farmery of Double Crown and Public, and uh, you have Colony, a new, and you have a new restaurant in the works, right?
4: Actually, uh, Colony is not my restaurant. Uh-huh. Um, it's just a bunch of uh, people that we used to work with and we love very much oh. uh, have gone off and opened a cool place. Oh, that's fantastic uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah, we're really so proud you're consulting
0: of a little bit with them, or only going. You're Just a mentor If you
4: call Eating and drinking Consulting Then I'm I'm all over it
0: Yeah Yeah absolutely And you've brought A guest with you Would you like to Introduce him
4: Yeah we brought uh, Ryan Butler Who's the pastry chef At Double Crown Oh problem And uh, you know He's all around Good guy Right hand man a man about town, so you name it, he does it.
0: Was so. he on your Cochon 555 team? Because we should was. mention that you were the winner of the New York chapter of the Cochon 555. Congratulations, cooking yeah. a
4: red bottle from Lazy Farm. <laughs> Thank
0: yeah. you very much. We're going to be going to visit Lazy Farm at the end of this month. Did you know that?
4: I did not. But would you I like wish- to come? I would love it. I would love it. Really? It sounds should like February a February pretty- 24th, 5th, 6th, 7th. Yeah. It sounds it's like a cool
0: it's going to be an absolutely outrageous trip. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, how was the pig? I mean, uh, tell us about the whole Koshon <clears throat> 555 experience because they sponsor the radio a little bit. And tell us how that went.
4: The whole experience was amazing. I, uh, you know, got asked or invited to do it. Um, and I, I thought it was pretty cool just to be asked to do it. You know, it, being recognized Brad, for. Brad, you
0: are way too modest.
4: <laughs> being recognized for um, cooking good food and using pig and, and doing it right was uh, was a nice nod. And so I was looking forward to um, cooking with all these other great chefs and using great product. And yeah, we had, you know, I think we had an amazing team. We had um, i say it was kind of probably the most unusual team. We had a, a Kiwi and Aussie, a pastry chef and an architect.
2: Fantastic.
0: Uh, and
4: so that I guess that builds good. <laughs> oh, your food. brother worked with you. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. No, he didn't work with me; he worked against me. Um, he oh. usually usually gets in the way. Doesn't know much about cooking, but um, he is the master of vibe. So um, he is. You know, he kept, he is kept our uh, spirits
1: question. up. Yeah, yeah. So Ned, you did some really funky things, and I want to lead into after this uh, other funky things that you do, just cooking with like exotic foods that a lot of other chefs don't really venture into. But mm-hmm. tell us what you did with the pig. I I mean, if you give us like a brief <laughs> rundown of how you used every single part of it.
4: Well, I, you know, I think the... Pro- how large it was? Oh, it, w- it was a good-sized pig. It was uh, about 210 pounds. Oof, um, so enough to throw your back out if you're not dealing with it, right? And, <laughs> uh, you know, but at the same time, it was an amazing pig. It was really firm, a really fat uh, belly on it, uh, big cheeks. And um, yeah, it was a good-looking pig. Sounds like a Rubensian pig, <laughs> fat belly, big cheeks. Fat belly, big cheeks. You know, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, what did you do with the cheeks, for instance? Because there's not that much of to go around. So how do you spread that across a lot of tastings?
4: Well, that was that was the hard thing. You know, there's a lot of the primary cuts in such a small amount of what I think are the more interesting bits. And so trying to figure out how you were going to stretch those interesting bits into, uh, you know, 400 tasting portions is is tough. So You know, with the with the the cheeks, for instance, we brined and boiled the whole head, and we did, uh, for lack of a better term, a head cheese, but a uh, a pig head terrine. um, You know, with a bit of five spice and some other goodness in there. Uh, With the pig liver, we made uh, pig liver creme caramels, uh, which is sort of a a dish we. I think it started as a joke, and it's turned into um, turned into one of our best dishes. I think. Um, and, you know, we, we did a few different blood uh, dishes. and
1: Why the fascination yeah. with blood? I mean, I'm interested. I mean, more than any other chef, you're the one that's most uh, pounding the drum for <laughs> the regulation of blood, you know, legalization of it. Because there is a lot of cultural history to that food, but it's prohibited here. So why, what is it about blood and how do you get it and, and what are you trying to do to get more of it?
4: I, yeah, I th- I'm I'm fascinated with it. I I spent about eight years in in London, and you know, black pudding is is very common there, and so is Boudin Noir, more the French style or the Morpheia. Um and you know, even over there, I think it's a little bit misunderstood and, and has a very old fashioned um, kind of reputation, and maybe that's something that uh, that is not uh, the new wave of food. But at the same time, I think with with any ingredient, if you look at <clears throat> at it and and try to figure out how best to use it and how to turn people on to something that i think naturally turns people away from the plate Uh, i think that's the challenge i kind of like facing hurdles like that and kind of looking at the the chemical makeup of it the um the, the protein structure and, and figuring out how can I turn this into something that's not just good but memorable and isn't just okay but uh, is something that people come back for.
3: Do you prefer the white blood cells or the red blood cells? <laughs> <laughs> I
4: take it all together, yeah.
3: Boudin um, noir, I mean, it's a, it is one of the, you know, the great French uh, sausages.
4: Yeah, I, I think that it, it can be magical. And I think very eye-opening as well. Um, and I think that if you look at a product that, generally speaking, um, gets wasted, and you're talking from mm-hmm. anywhere between three and seven percent of an animal's live weight is being poured right down the drain. And not only being poured right down the drain, but there's environmental factors that go with this. So then people buy chemicals to neutralize the blood that's going down the drain instead of providing this as a protein source.
1: Very interesting. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, fascinating stuff. So tell us on this kind of thing about bringing new tastes and and new cuts, I guess, or, you know, saving parts of animals. I see here, grilled kangaroo on a coriander falafel with lemon tahini sauce and green pepper relish. Awesome. And Katie was telling me about a lot of exotic game that you have brought to almost the New York restaurant scene because of time in Australia or New Mm -hmm. Zealand. So, tell us about that and how the hell do you get those foods?
4: (laughs) Yeah, I think I think when we were first opening public, we had um, you know, we Wanted to make a really interesting menu where uh, it, it was very unlike anything that had happened in New York. I'd never lived or, or worked in New York, so I didn't even have a very good view of, of what did happen here and what was happening down the street even. But, um, you know, I figured that there's a lot of people that cook chicken. There's a lot of people that cook steak. Um, And it's not that I don't like those ingredients, but I did want to open people's eyes to new and interesting um, things like venison and wild boar and and kangaroo. I think in the beginning, a lot of people thought it was shock value, and they thought that I was trying to make a big splash in a big city. And I think that eventually ended up that that they came to understand that this is where you can come and and find something interesting and find something different. So it it sort of evolved over the years, and... um, and I think that we have a great crowd that come every day for exactly that. I think at least once a week we have a table walk out once they see the menu, and I'm fine with that because uh, there's a lot of people that are waiting in line to to have that Kobe beef tongue or have that kangaroo. Um.
1: Well, Kitty, uh, if you need a mic, share that <laughs> mic with Brad because <laughs> you're the other half of the interview and you have like twenty questions, so you should I definitely. I always have twenty
0: questions for Brad. <laughs> But Brad, you've, you've, I mean, I'm looking at your menus here because I just, just because Patrick is not, uh, you know, I don't think is as familiar with your cuisine as I am, but I mean, let's talk for just a second about Double Crown, which is, uh, you know, again, spans, you know, half the globe, goes to in, a, in quite a different direction than Public, and what was it that um, that really, you know, a lot of the dishes, even on Public's menu, you've, you, I know you spent time in Goa, and so you had a, I remember you had a fantastic Goan veg, vegetable curry on the menu at Public for a long time. I see that's gone now but but you seem to have like migrated those dishes over into the double crown menu and so what you know like those i think that's a whole new trend that's starting that people are really starting to embrace is is creating some sort of uh connection between um you know american ingredients and and more exotic south asian spices so let's talk for a second about that because i did
3: you call that a new trend no i call maybe not
0: a new trend but certainly a more visible trend
3: would you say the 30 years old would be new or Ooh, jeffrey. <laughs> oh Jeffrey!
4: spicy <sound. laughs> take the take the mic back
6: <laughs> no no i no,
0: no. i've already annoyed jeffrey enough I, I i he's already told me to be quiet more than once on this radio show so that i can he can expound so um i'm going to let jeffrey talk about the genesis of that trend since he seems so familiar with it and then you can talk about your role in in moving into it
4: hit me jeffrey <laughs> no,
3: no. <laughs> Keep your hands where I can see them. The importance the is how well is it done. There have been lots of attempts to kind of um, merge Indian spices and cooking methods with the local ingredients. It's a very common thing, um, <coughs> but how often has it been done well? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to, to, to taste what Brad is doing.
4: Yeah, I, I would agree with that and I think that that's why the word fusion just makes people's skin crawl I think that uh, people try to figure out how many things they can get on the plate instead of what the balance is and I think by at least for myself the way that I like to construct dishes and and kind of incorporate new ingredients is to to actually go and travel and see how they're used uh, in that spot itself I, I try not to dabble with cuisines that I haven't actually been to those countries um, I think that that's just a lot of guesswork, but I think actually being there and seeing how um, local people use it, how they appreciate it, and how they use it to balance flavors within their cuisine, I think that's very eye-opening. And that hopefully allows me to be able to inflect that same balance into uh, what i'm trying to do with those ingredients so
1: talking about that in the context of some of the exotic game that you bring in like kangaroo how does that manifest itself like what do they do there that then informs how you do it here or alligator or other things that you might do
4: i think uh you know the i think wild boar you know I've, i've done a wild boar hunt, and I've been in certain areas that, you know, wild boars held in fairly high esteem, but again, quite often they're just trying to use the primary cuts, and you know, I had a great, um, kind of eye-opening experience for both sides, where I, you know, I'm not a hunter, but I, I appreciate what they do, and and, uh, and the product that comes out of it. And I think I had a great experience where I got to go on a hunt, and, and actually uh, get a wild boar, and then we took all the hunters into the kitchen with us and showed them how they could prepare it in a very simple mm. fashion. And it was interesting because they would usually field gut it and leave everything in the field to make it lighter, make it easier to, to get back. And often they would only take the, the loins off the back, mm. and they would give away the legs, or they would give that to the people that were helping to skin it. Or um, And, you know, the head was a definite no-go zone, so we... You know, we tried to use every single part and show these people how it could be done, and I think that you know I learned something out of it. They learned something out of it, and we all walked away a little bit smarter. And I think that happens any time you can get into um, a new culture. I think that you can bring something to them, and they can bring something to you.
3: So, if you used every part, you would um, uh, obviously have used a uh, uh, pig built. Is that right? <laughs> I have
4: not used pig milk. That that uh, I'll admit on <laughs> right here right now. Well, if it's a phony. <laughs> sound milk. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> no milk.
0: Okay, I have a question though. And maybe Jeffrey knows the answer to this. We have an absolute uh epidemic of of feral pigs in the south and southwest. And they are a tremendous uh, disservice to farmers all across that part of the country. Why aren't we shooting and eating them?
3: What's the difference? Brad will tell you the difference.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you mean I stumped you? I, um, it's funny, actually. When I signed up for a, uh, a hunting license to go after uh, feral swine, mm-hmm. um, I paid my ten dollars and uh, and there was no limit on uh, how long or how many or or anything. It was just kind of like go for it, you know, <laughs> do us a, do us a favor and help us out. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was interesting because I know w- with almost everything else, there's such a, a short season. And it's very prescribed what you need to do, and this was just like, okay, there you go. Please kill as many as yeah. you can. <laughs> point point me in the right direction and get going. You know,
0: when you went on that boar hunt, which I think I remember described it was in Esquire. Was that where? It was Journal. Men's Journal, right? And um, and so you, it was scary, right? Those boars are no joke. So you want to talk for a second about like what it was like to sit in the blind and and have the dogs flush that boar and and what you did next? Who who delivered the fatal shot?
4: Yeah, I think that you know the whole setup was a bit ridiculous. You know, I'm, I'm as I said, I'm not a hunter, and um, and a lot of it was being organized sort of without my knowledge. And so um, you know, I, I called. Uh, Uncle Bubsy, who was the man on the scene, who was organizing the whole hunt, and I said, "You know, oh my God, you know, haven't been down there. I haven't done this before. Do people get hurt doing this?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, all the time." <laughs> yeah. It's not really what you want to hear when you're sitting there in your New York office, uh, trying to in trying to fe- in in your chef whites, trying to figure out how this is all going to roll out.
1: Be back Monday at nine a.m. Yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs> I'm like, hey, I've got a child. Come Any on, my wife? yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it it was it was you know as i keep saying an eye-opening experience where um you know we were traipsing through the woods and and we were uh hunting with no guns just knives and uh, a pack of dogs and um that's the way these guys like to do it and they like to uh you know try to keep a fair table going and and yeah it's you know they no say no guns
3: just knives yeah well why didn't you go on a different border? <laughs> It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, what do you know about right. killing a boy with
4: a knife? I agree, but uh, if you kill you, <laughs> animals I'm four five
0: hundred. Yeah, That's and scary.
4: and they um, you know, down there they they roll in the mud and then they rub against trees, so you can tell how big they are by seeing how high up the mud comes. And so they were estimating that you know there were definitely three four hundred pound animals out there. The one that we uh, killed was only about two two fifty, so I guess a medium sized one.
1: So let me ask just a a, a technical question, then we want to get in a little bit to the pastry and how how you can make uh, savories, you know, like a pig, uh, you know, help win a competition. But, um, like, I know how you, like, fish distributors, you know, I've always been taught, like, oh, their stuff's going bad all the time, you know, because it's a fish, so you have to be careful that you're always getting the freshest stuff. You know, with meats, there's many people selling, you know, American meats, but then how do you source, like, exotic game? What's the state of exotic game? Who are its distributors? Does it come fresh? How do you trust the source of it so far? You know, all those types of questions. Because it's a whole different market in game, I would imagine.
4: It is, and I think that uh, it's almost the same as any relationship you build with the purveyor. Uh, You know, you get to trust the person that you're buying from. And I think that we only buy from people that we trust, but also people that we like. And I think that we try to build a relationship with with people who want to see a great product come to us and want to see us do something really interesting with it. Because at the end of the day, that's the best advertising for what they're doing, is if we can make something amazing and put it on the plate, then they have a whole lot more people that they can sell to. Um, All of our wild game comes in... um, uh, fresh, with the exception of kangaroo, comes in frozen.
1: And um, where do they come? Like via ship, or is is there a main guy? I mean, what? How many people use exotic game like that? Would we be surprised? Like, oh my god, a lot of people use it, or really very few people using
4: them? Um, I think things like venison. Uh, you know, it's it's funny because a lot of people still follow the uh, the traditional venison cycle, where the, the, they put it on their menu for fall, uh, maybe into early winter when. And it's such as lean meat, and it takes so well to, to grilling. I think it's a wonderful summer dish. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard. It, unless you're known for that, sometimes it can be a hard sell in the middle of summer to do a, a grilled venison dish. But we keep it on our menu all year long. And I actually... we. Just an end of year report that we sold about seven thousand uh, portions of venison last year. Does
1: that make you the number one venison restaurant on the East Coast? Maybe.
4: It, well, we we use New Zealand venison. It makes us the number one New Zealand <laughs> venison restaurant cool. in America. So yeah. Awesome. By by a long shot. <laughs>
1: and now, um, if we could ask your pastry uh, pastry man here, um, do you use these same things? I mean, was that a mandate when you <laughs> did pastry for them to use funky materials in your desserts?
5: Well, I mean, I. Pretty much always have used, uh, you know, kind of off the wall things mixed with the traditional pastry and kind of, you know, whipping up something new, but using, you know, classic techniques, you know, to not really scare anybody. but Give us some examples. Um, Dessert wise, we use a lot of miso, um, a lot of bacon fat. You know, with uh, the cochon, we had an opportunity to do a lot of, you know, a couple of desserts and a couple of cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, a
0: cocktail featuring bacon?
5: Right, I actually smoked pork fat.
0: Bacon ice cream, I think, is great, right. but um, you know, know it, a lot of
5: like pork, you know, trends Emulsified go really fat. well with desserts. <laughs> think of breakfast, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, what else? Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 well, I mean, it's funny that you say that because earlier in the discussion, um, when I was, you know, still permitted to speak, um, Jeffrey and I were discussing the fact that, in fact, this is what instilled him to to, to admonish me was using. T- you know recreating the like new new for the sake of new but building from old techniques and I think that's kind of that's a little bit a little bit of the theme throughout this um, discussion mm-hmm. and and so we were talking about molecular you know molecular gastronomy even though nobody likes that term but um so how how much of what you're doing do you think is is just kind of like wow let me just play with this and see what happens and maybe I can invent something incredible and new that nobody's ever seen before or and how much of it is really based on like well I know that this is a solid set of flavors and you know, and here's my flan to put right. it in, or something like that.
5: I mean, the way that I, you know, look at it and try to develop dishes is more, um, you know, like let's try. It. Why not? I mean, what's the difference? You know, if it doesn't work, we'll do something else. I've made many, many things that were terrible. You know, and then we just scrap it and start again, and then look at it in a different way. You know, I've been trying to do this um, like toasted rye bread ice cream for years, and I just never liked it. Ooh, that you know, sounds very good. Sounds good. I know, it does very good. Um, you know, because I really, really like another uh, thing we like to use in the pastry department is caraway seeds because I think they're very interesting. They work really well, and
1: you find <laughs> them later in your teeth. I love that. <laughs>
5: <Right>. <laughs> well, we grind them up into a powder, but you know, it, no, I I'll do make like you that. some special caraway seeds. I mean, it does have a you know kind of that you know feeling of rye bread and something you know you grew up with. You know, like growing up, I ate a lot of that in sandwiches and things, and I thought, why not? You know. There was that scene in
1: City Slickers where supposedly I guess the Ben and Jerry look alike and they get they say name me any main course an appetizer and we will tell you we
2: the perfect the ice, ice cream. cream with Yeah. It. yeah. It's
1: yeah. uh it's an interesting thing toasted like for instance toasted uh, uh, rye bread ice cream I know right now would be delicious.
2: Well to go
0: back to what we were talking about with Ferran Adrià wasn't it Ferran Adrià who came up with parmesan ice cream or he had the Napoleon of that was like an interstitial you know and right. what do you call that when they you know we have the, the granite or something like that in between inter-mezzo. courses intermezzo yeah right. I mean actually do you guys have you ever thought about doing that like doing a sort of savory sweet for in between your courses Brad
4: um we, I <laughs> thanks
1: think- for opening that can of worms <laughs> the L train yeah, right back <laughs> is going to be a pain in the ass for Brad now he's like the people are demanding it <laughs>
4: Yeah. <laughs> uh yes. Yes. <laughs> A scale of 1 to 10. Yes. Uh next question. <laughs> no, but um
3: well, you, you I'm sorry, Jeff. You, you ask go? something about your pig. Hit me. How did you cook the pig?
4: Um for koshan cochon or the wild boar?
3: That was the cochon, I'm sorry.
4: But for cochon we um you know, we looked at doing probably too many dishes. We did about uh I think 10 different dishes to try to make sure that we could use all of it. We uh, smoked the pork bones and made a a laksa, a um, Southeast Asian soup. Uh, We took the—I wanted to make lardo out of the uh, fat, but I didn't know if if it was a lardo crowd, so uh, we smoked the fat, and that's when we did the um, fat-washed cocktail. Uh, sort of what Eben Freeman started doing uh, four or five years ago we, you know, and, and Eben was nice enough to come and visit us and talk about how he came up with that dish or that cocktail and, and told us, you know, gave us a few hints, so again we were
3: Where, did, where were you able to find a, a non-lardo grout? Uh yeah, well I I, New Jersey. (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I think
4: well, to be honest, I think
6: I think maybe
4: more than anything, I thought it was it was something that someone else would do. Um, I thought that everyone's going to have a lot of back fat, and what are they going to do with it? So, um, so yeah, we want to go a slightly different direction. We did the the pig liver creme caramels. We made um, pig blood popsicles, um, which. uh, went over a treat uh we did black pudding uh pie so we basically did a lot of grinding of the heart the what kidneys. did you do with
1: the loins and stuff
4: you know what man <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's the funny thing we were like what are we gonna do yeah. with those how do you make that interesting but um but you know we, we that actually most the worst
3: part of the pig anyway
4: yeah I, I well i think so too we um most
3: expensive but yeah useless
4: yeah, we. it's funny, and people would probably have a heart attack, but we ground a lot of it up um, and put it in with our black pudding. Um, so... Yeah, so we kind of stretched uh, the blood that we had and the back Mm -hmm. fat that we had with uh, the the premium bits.
1: It's interesting, like if you actually think about it based off what you just said, Jeffrey, it's really the cheapest, the quote-unquote least desirable parts of, for instance, the pig, should actually be the most expensive. Mm -hmm. Because A, the littlest amount goes the furthest way, and I mean, you know, uh, like pig head terrine for instance you sell a little or a ham i mean god we sell ham for two dollars a pound and then someone will then you know twenty four dollars a pound or something like that you know software obviously it has to cure for a long time but um well one of these questions i wanted to ask you especially i mean your mentors because um, we only have a couple minutes left but i mean who were some of your mentors to do some of this really funky uh um funky could bring cuisine like this to new york
4: um Again, um, all of my real cooking has been done in the UK in London. Uh, One of my big mentors was a chef named Peter Gordon. He was a New Zealand chef, but um, he was well known for kind of bringing spices from all of his travels into his cooking. But he was also a big fan of uh, trying to make um, the secondary cuts the center of the plate and the real hero. Um, You know, he was actually Fergus Henderson's uh, head chef at the French House when uh, Fergus first started um, serving food, Peter was the man behind the stoves. And Mm so, um, you know, I think the combination of both their ideas, um, turned into something really amazing, you know, with what Fergus is doing now. Um, you know, I worked at, um, a lot of restaurants and Michelin star restaurants, and I thought it was really interesting how they could get, uh, people to not just eat head and kidneys and, and, uh, pig blood but get them to pay a lot of money for it um so i think that in mm-hmm. england i think that rationing and a lot of the world war ii stuff like you know victory gardens and rationing and um, making the most out of a small amount mm-hmm. is still kind of playing its way out onto the plates uh even after all these years and not mm-hmm. just in cafes and uh restaurants but michelin star restaurants carlo
1: Petrino he said famine is the driving force of all gastronomy you know, it all comes from a place of uh, rationing, or you know, um, just famine in general, yeah. which you and Jeffrey were alive during. <laughs> yes, we were a lot of
3: that. That's right. We'll reach we, <laughs>
0: um, One thing I wanted to say though about
3: that's a ridiculous Well <laughs> <laughs> uh, Most gastronomy uh, in the past has come from the royal courts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly what Les Coffiers and, uh, and all of the great French, I mean... Uh, oh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, well, because who could afford to pay somebody to cook and get all those fantastic ingredients? And spices were very expensive, as we've discussed earlier, so that does make sense. But I think Can that... Can I
3: ask Brad? Yeah. Um, one thing about the pig. The, um, one time when I was in Thailand, I was in Chiang Mai, which is in the north, and someone who someone who had read The Man Who ate Everything wanted to show me that I would be squeamish if he but you know you know, if he fed me certain things so we went to a Chinese restaurant which I had a specialty of, of uh, chicken brains well, I was looking one? forward to that I didn't know they had brains and in, yeah. and in any event they're very sm- <laughs> small very so small. if you take them out you probably get these these kind of little yellow nuggets they must be let's say know, half a teaspoon yeah. but they were out of season <laughs> So, ins- were. <laughs> so instead we had um, pig's brains in a kind of gratin hmm. um, and naturally I was a little reluctant you know, to take the first bite it was so delicious that um, for some reason I did not find out how they made it uh, Well, one reason was that I was told there would be a lot of Chinese gangsters there and, and it would be better if I just Kept in my seat,
0: ate your ate your food, uh, and kept your kept your questions to yourself. Pig's brains?
1: Now that's
0: not. Well, I would I love mean... to
3: know. And they were just delicious. And, and apparently, farmers and you know, American farmers, but in the old days, did not throw out pig's brains.
1: Did you? Have you come across it
4: at all? Or? Um, uh, I've the only way I've ever had pig's brains uh, was mixed with scrambled eggs, and um, I even had it once with uh, some shaved truffle over. So it's it's taking. Uh, one of the most humble ingredients and in, and in bringing it really right up there. And, that sounds great. And I agree. It's a very subtle texture. It's a very subtle flavor. And I think something like eggs are a great way to sort of stretch it out into a meaningful dish. And then you throw truffles on it, and it's extremely meaningful. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mike, in the South, or I don't know, maybe it was ubiquitous in the United States, but my grandfather used to, before they put a ban on, on uh, cattle, on beef offal, or at least on beef brain my we, he would frequently serve up calves brains and, and scrambled eggs i i've never heard of pig brain before but calves brain i think was very common and my grandfather was from new orleans as was my dad and it was a real favorite for them along with eel for some reason was another big
6: Ooh, breakfast good. dish
0: for them yeah yeah but i mean to go back for just a second and then i know we have to wrap up pretty soon but um you know jack is like uh-huh yeah. yeah like i got my next <laughs> Enough, show you freaking <laughs> blabbermouth um but,
3: <laughs> They have someone better coming on after
1: (laughs) us? Well, no, there's our next show. Actually, yes. It's Ann Saxelby. Cutting the Curd. It's Ann Saxelby Cheesemongers. I wanted her to call it Curds Way. But instead, she called it cutting the she curd. She called it
0: cutting the curd, and she, and she did the right thing, Patrick, really. She did the right thing. Because yeah, not everybody's going to get the inflection exactly right like you do. You
5: need a hand, yeah, yeah, hand motion. Yeah, you do. But
0: to go, for one second, to go back to that idea of what is gastronomy and like where, you know, Jeffrey, you're saying that it, it, it really came out of aristocratic family homes and, He's and talking about royal the courts. New stuff. I guess uh, Carla was talking but about the, like
1: potatoes or something.
0: But the thing know? is, is that what Brad said was interesting to me because. Because, yes, all of a sudden, things like beef cheeks or, or pork cheeks, pork nuggets, I mean, all these bits that were traditionally associated with Cucina Povera mm-hmm. have now become the haute cuisine, and that, I think, is sort of the... High, low, the, interesting... Yeah, yeah, that, I think, is what is an interesting development. I mean...
3: Maybe that was done by the French uh, during the Nouvelle Cuisine period. I remember eating at... Um, one of the first... Uh, three-star meals I ever had. Um, I'm sorry I'm about to sneeze. Okay, Okay,
1: let's say them. We can uh, (laughs) know. La Granouille. La Bernouille. La
5: Caravelle. La Pyramide.
0: You went to La Maison de la Pyramide?
3: This was actually Alain Chapelle, and he had uh, two, uh, two of the rustic dishes he had brought back, and And um, that, you know, brought to his fabulous, refined restaurant were um, the deep fried calves' ears and um, uh, poulet en vessie, which is now popular again. That is um, the chicken, you know, steamed in a pig's bladder.
1: Ooh, yeah! Everyone wants bladder. Mario Batali was always like first question and last. I want pig bladder, I want pig bladder, I want pig bladder, and we could never, you know. But that was good.
3: 1978, I think, and he was he was one of the greatest chefs who ever lived. And in those days, a uh, three-star, the French restaurant's meant something.
1: It doesn't anymore?
4: Can Worms.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's
4: another program. <laughs> <room. laughs> yeah. How much time do you <laughs> going the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a wrap-up question, is it, Patrick? Yeah. No, but, I mean, is this a cliffhanger? Do we continue this well, next
1: week? we actually do want uh, both you guys back for yeah. sure. I mean, Jeffrey, we could have... There were maybe five... But basically, I like about Jeffrey, you can literally say a <laughs> word two pages of questions for you that, that we didn't even i'm sorry Katie, am i was i being a bad co-host today no no no.
0: i was a bad co-host so i had to be reprimanded by our guest uh, jeffrey you know that's bad so um i guess we should wrap it up though right jackie is jackie giving me the thumbs up he is um
1: so i don't think that was a thumb
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was not his middle finger i swear to god he did not flip me the bird but um but i do want to thank um brad and um Ryan, for coming in from um, Public Double Crown. You're at Public?
5: I'm at Double Crown.
0: You're at Double Crown. And nice. um, I urge people to check out both of Always these restaurants. An Australian in the kitchen Absolutely there. fantastic. Someone
1: from uh, England. Every time I call the kitchen, I'm like, hello. Um,
0: two great restaurants. And, of course, uh, the eminent and fantastic, amazing, and incomparable...
1: Irreplaceable Jeffrey Steinberg. Jeffrey Steinberg, You need, I mean, I know we are way past, you know, you're way above us, but would you way. consider doing a show? You should have your own show. And you come in once a month and they give you a But only pizza. if I get to heckle him. <laughs> you should really come and do your own show. Yo, I
3: love being heckled, but... <laughs>
1: Josh Ozersky was, uh, you know, I know he's your friend. He used to have a show on here, and he's gone. We need a, a real, true force. We need to graduate now to a great mind and do a uh, and Why do does your Josh show. Have
3: a show anymore?
1: Um, we he's have to too cancel busy. him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We had to cancel him, yeah. He wasn't working out. No, I don't know. I think he was too busy. He's but, too busy. But um, we do, would like you to come and do a show. No, we can talk about that. Okay, good. Um, well, we so. want to
0: thank our sponsor for today, which was Whole Foods Market. Um, as always, they've done a great job.
1: We have Temple Grandin coming yeah, but on Yeah, she's coming in on in weeks. Weeks. March,
0: March 27th, so March 27th. So stay tuned end for end that. March. We have many great shows between now and then. Um, and we'll be back next week Thanks, uh, Jack. for another great show. We have Deborah Krasner, Good meet next week, um, and a few other fantastic guests. Yeah. So um, do stay tuned for that. And thank you, Jack, for all your uh, engineering and, and production. And thank Promise. you again to our guests for joining us, including Nancy Newsom on the phone today. So see you next week, folks.
4: Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network.